And since today you're going to hear what many consider the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher, I think you need to remember this one. Matthew chapter 5. Today we're going to do an overview of these attitudes that ought to be, which are typically called the Beatitudes. But I want to make this very practical. I don't want this to just be uh, academic, if you will. So here's the way I've worded this. How to find true happiness. How do you find true happiness? Where do you, where do you go to find true happiness? That would help, but Jesus doesn't mention that here. Well, like I said, these verses here in Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, have come to be known as the Beatitudes, the attitudes that ought to be in us. They launched what has come to be regarded as the greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher, who, is, who of course, is Jesus Christ. It's a sermon known as the Sermon on the Mount. It's not just here in Matthew 5. In fact, it goes all the way to chapter 7. It is the first recorded sermon that we have that Jesus preached. Jesus defined here for us the character of the kingdom of heaven into which people enter when they are saved. So you want to know what it's like? This is what it's like. Jesus defines it for us. It was a a very heart-searching sermon. If you've ever read it, you can see that for yourself. Jesus answered several questions here for us. Let me give you some questions that uh, Jesus answered for us here. Well, Number one, how do we enter into this kingdom that Jesus talks about in Matthew? And what are the defining marks of true saving faith? What are the marks of true godliness? What are the marks of true spirituality? What distinguishes true religion from dead religion? Well, Jesus is going to answer all of those questions for us here. It is helpful to understand the spiritual climate that Jesus was living in at this time. You see, the Israelites were a very religious group of people, but despite the fact that they were religious, they were nevertheless, most of them, lost. And so our Lord Jesus Christ gives the defining marks here of what true conversion looks like, what is true godliness, what is true piety. And just because these people were there listening to him and many were flocking to him, by the way, doesn't mean that they were all Christians. In fact, we're going to see most of them were not. many respects, it's a lot like our own country today. Our country is filled with dead religion and lifeless Christianity And we need authentic Christianity still today. Which is why we need to hear this important message then, don't we? Today we are going to get an overview of the Beatitudes, okay? So I want us to kind of picture with me kind of jumping in an airplane and flying over the forest that we're going to call the Beatitudes. The attitudes that ought to be. First of all, I want us to notice the preacher of true happiness. Who is the preacher of true happiness? Well, of course, Jesus is the greatest preacher who ever lived. We've been talking about him. In chapter 4, we saw his early ministry. 
Well, who is Jesus? Well, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, you find that he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is literally God in human flesh. God the Father, by the way, only had one son. And the Bible says that he was sent to this earth. If you read Matthew 1.21, his mission was to come and save his people from their sin. God sent him to this world to preach. If you look at the end of chapter 4, verse 23, look what it says. Matthew 4, 23, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So as you read that, you should get the idea that we have people coming from all directions because it's mentioning north, south, east, and west. And by the way, Decapolis is, is referring to that area that was mostly to the east of the Sea of Galilee, which was really a lake. But it was referring to this ten-city region. That's what Deca means, ten. So we get people coming from east, west, north, south. They're coming from all over. And why are they coming to this area called Galilee? They're coming to hear Jesus preach. Notice that we see here, interestingly enough, in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, what, what does Jesus do here? This is interesting because 5, verse 1 says, And seeing the multitudes... He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them. So it says there that Jesus actually sat down. Why would Jesus do that? Because Jesus is taking the position of a rabbi. You say, what's a rabbi? A rabbi was, was a Jewish teacher, teacher of the law, and so Jesus takes the position of a rabbi, he sits down to teach. Notice the response. I want, I want, often, I wouldn't recommend you often do this when you're reading a book, but let's see the end. What is the response? You go to the, the end of the sermon, I want you to see the response of the people in chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 28. How do, the people, how do these people respond to Jesus' preaching? Matthew 7, verse 28 says this, And so it was, when Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. So how did the people respond to his preaching? The Bible says they were astonished. In other words, they were awestruck by what he had to say. He wasn't like the other Jewish teachers. He was different. And this is what is so desperate today. You say, what's desperate today? What is desperate today? The centrality and the primacy of preaching. That's what we need today, friends. I, I, I don't know about you, but I want to have a word-centered church. I don't want a program-oriented church or a building-oriented church, or whatever else. 
or an entertainment-oriented church. I want a word-oriented church. That's what Jesus cared about. And by the way, the church is, is, is going to rise no farther than the pulpit. And by the pulpit, I mean the preaching and teaching of the Word. So goes the pulpit, so goes the church. If the pulpit is weak, the preaching of the Word is weak, or virtually non-existent, guess what? The people in the congregation are going to be weak. So when the church has been the strongest throughout church history, it is when the preaching of the Word is the strongest. Do you know why there was a Dark Ages? <laughs> it's because the Word of God was, was virtually only known by people who knew Latin. People didn't have the Word of God in their own language. They couldn't read the Word of God. The, the preaching was, was virtually non-existent. What brought the people out of the Dark Ages was the preaching of the Word and the, the Word of God being printed in their language. And so when the pulpit is weak, the church becomes sickly and anemic. So what do we need to do? We need to pray that God would raise up powerful preachers of the Word. I want us to read our passage before we start looking at the individual Beatitudes here. So let's, let's start reading again in verse 1. Matthew 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he, that's Jesus, went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner or all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We'll end there. That ends the section on the Beatitudes. What I want to look at next is the promise of true happiness. There is a promise here. When you look at this sermon, no sermon ever started as positively as this one. I mean, think about it. Of all the things that Jesus could have said, what is his first word in verse 3? The first word is blessed. Blessed. And by the way, each verse starts with that word blessed. <clears throat> Every person inside the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, is blessed. Everyone. All who are outside the kingdom are not going to receive this blessedness. In other words, if you're not a Christian, Jesus is saying you will not receive this blessing that's mentioned here. And by the way, I was, I was hesitant to use the word happiness because the word blessedness is, is even richer and fuller than most people think of the word happy. Typically, people think of the word happy as very, quite frankly, very shallow and and trite. But when you see this word blessed here, you need to think of something that is full, deep, and rich. 
probably even bigger than what you would think of the word happiness. So what is blessedness? What is true happiness? Well, first of all, it speaks of eternal salvation. Eternal salvation is true happiness. That's where it starts, because either you're in the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom. Either you're a Christian or you're not. Either you have true saving faith or you do not. So it's speaking of eternal salvation as opposed to being eternally cursed. The Bible says we have been weighed in the balance, and guess what? We have been found wanting. The Bible says we, that all are sinners. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. God's standard of holiness is something that none of us have attained to. So we've all fallen short of that standard, if you will. Think of God's holiness as a, as a target that's down the field, if you will. And you need to think of yourself as like a, an arrow being shot out of a bow, and, and, and the bow can't possibly reach the target of God's holiness. So you fall short, and you land in the grass. We've all done that. We've all sinned, and so we've fallen short of God's standard of holiness. But the good news is that eternal salvation is possible. We all don't have to receive God's wrath because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What is blessedness? Not only is it talking about eternal salvation, it speaks of true happiness. In other words, it's a contentment of heart and soul. A contentment of heart and soul can happen despite your circumstances. Okay, we're not talking about, you know, your life being all, you know, perfect here. Okay, that's not what we're talking about. True happiness has nothing to do with, you know, being rich and healthy and wealthy and famous and all that sort of stuff. Interestingly enough, we're told to rejoice in the Lord, to be glad at the end of the sermon, or this, the Beatitudes here. Each verse, by the way, starts with blessed, but verse 12 helps really to give a definition of blessedness, and it uses the word rejoice. You see the word in verse 12, rejoice. We are blessed because of what? Because we're saved, yes, we're, in fact, we're eternally saved, but we're also blessed because one day we are going to enter into the kingdom and become objects of His grace. The other interesting thing in this passage is that some of these beatitudes are present tense, but some of them are future. Some people think of all of them as future, something that's only going to happen in the future, but that's not true. Some of them are present tense. Some of these things happen here and now while you are on this earth. But some of them are only going to be ultimately fulfilled in the next life. By the way, you don't need a second blessing. There are some religions who talk about second blessings. You don't need a second blessing. That's heresy. (laughs) Okay, the Bible says you receive all blessing at the moment of your conversion, when God regenerates you, at the moment of your salvation, when you receive eternal life. You get all the blessing you're going to get. You don't need a second blessing. You don't have to do anything to get God's second, the so-called second blessing. 
Well, so far we have seen the preacher in the promise. Now I want you to see the paradox of true happiness. The paradox of true happiness. In this passage here, everything just seems upside down, doesn't it? It seems upside down. It seems to be contrary to reality. They seem to be the opposite of what we would normally think, don't they? And what you're going to find is that the kingdom is different from what the world is going to try to tell you. The world's going to try to tell you the exact opposite of of what Jesus says here. These are what we might call oxymorons. And if you're not familiar with what, what, an, what you say, well, what is an oxymoron? Well, uh, <clears throat> let me help you out. An oxymoron is where you have words that are joined together that seem to be opposites. I'll give you some examples, all right? I, I find oxymorons quite funny, so let me give you a few. For example, rap music. I mean, how do you put those two words together? I mean, it's not music. It's noise. Freezer burn. I mean, freezer burn. I mean, you get burnt by something that's cold, right? That's an oxymoron. And another one is Christian science. It's neither Christian, neither is it science. So why they put those together, I'm not sure. Those are examples of oxymorons. And, And what we have here are paradoxes, or in a way, oxymorons, Things being put together that seem to be opposites. Everything in this kingdom is paradoxical. And this is one reason why the health and the wealth gospel is so dangerous. The health and the, pros- the prosperity gospel teaches that, you know, become a Christian and then you're, you're going to be wealthy, famous, you're not going to have any health problems, and so forth. That's dangerous, okay? I think every one of us in this room knows after we became a Christian, that's not reality, is it? And by the way, most of the people in the health and wealth gospel end up finding out that's not reality either. And so in this true kingdom of God, there's, there is no promise of health and wealth here. Not, not like these people proclaim it anyways. So the health and the wealth gospel really is the devil's lie, isn't it? It's the devil's lie, you know, become a Christian and then you'd you be trapped in this religious system and you think you might become healthy and wealthy and wise. Well, that's not true. Actually, there is a, a promise of persecution here, in fact, isn't there? God says, blessed are the persecuted. <laughs> well, what does the world tell us? Let me give you some examples here as we, as we look at these Beatitudes. In verse 3, the, the world would twist verse 3 and say, Happy are the self-confident and the self-reliant. And in verse 4, the world might say, Happy are those who seek pleasure. Happy are the hedonist. In verse 5, the world says, Happy are those who push their way around and demand their rights. Happy are the proud, the powerful, and the important. And in verse 6, the world says, Happy are the full and the drunk. Happy are the partiers. Happy are the satisfied, the well-adjusted, and the practical people. In verse 7, the world says, Happy are those who stand up and demand their rights. Happy are those who have power and, and, and do whatever they like. They fulfill the prophecy of the Nike commercial, just do it. In verse 8, the world says, Happy are the perverted and the polluted. Verse 9, the world says, happy are the rich, the famous, and the popular. Happy are the popular, those who 
don't rock the boat. Well, that's what the world says, but what does God say? Look at Romans 12, verse 2 on the screen here. God commands us, do not be conformed to this world. In other words, don't allow the world to press you into its mold. The world wants you to think like all of those things I just told you. That's the world system. That's their beliefs. And it's continually trying to get you to think like that. And it's doing that through all sorts of means, through the radio, the TV, magazines, TV commercials, billboards, you name it. It's trying to get you to think that way. God says, don't allow the world to press you into its mold. Instead, here's the positive command, be metamorphosized. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's will is good, acceptable, and perfect. Do you have a desire for God's will? The, world, the world's will is opposite of God's will. Number four, let's look at the progression of true happiness. There is a progression that takes place here. There is a, in fact, it's a supernatural progression of blessedness or happiness. And and you need to understand, there's a reason why number one comes first. There's a reason why number four comes where it does. And there's a reason why number eight comes where it does. Jesus is not just pulling things out of thin air and throwing them in the pot and mixing them all together. There's an order here. There is a progression, a divine order. The first four, let me just point this out before we, in the weeks to come, start looking at them individually. The first four actually stand together. The first four Beatitudes, what they're doing is they're actually leading the sinner from darkness to light, leading the sinner from hell to heaven. They're comprising the narrow gate that actually ushers us into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is going to talk about that narrow gate in chapter 7. There's only one gate, it's narrow. And few find it. But the broad way to destruction, to hell, is is wide. And Jesus said, and many are on that road. So if you want to know how to get to heaven... Jesus helps us to know how to get there. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. These are four elements of true saving faith. So let me me talk about them quickly. Verse 3, we see there has to be a recognition that you and I have nothing to offer God. You and I have nothing to offer God. That's what Jesus means in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means you have nothing to offer God. You have to come to Him and say, God, I have nothing to offer you except my sin. You cannot get into heaven thinking that you have something to offer God. Poor in spirit is this idea that you come with empty hands. You're, You're holding your empty hands out to God and say. God, I have nothing, but would you please take me anyway? That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Verse 4, naturally following after verse 3, when someone comes to God and says, hey, I have nothing to offer you, 
what's the next response going to be of that person? Naturally, that's going to lead to the second one here in verse 4. So as you, you're recognizing your sin, what are you going to do? You're going to mourn, you're going to weep over your sin. By the way, don't freak out about that one. Because I've, I've, I'm finding this in my life as I'm growing closer and closer to Jesus Christ, being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the more and more I'm seeing my sin and the more I'm hating myself. And the more I'm longing to be perfect and go to heaven. So if you feel yourself you know, noticing your sin more and not liking it, Praise God for that. That's a work of His grace in your life. And that's what happens in, in the second beatitude there. The person sees their sin, they weep in their mourning over their sin. This is true repentance. A godly sorrow that's leading to true saving faith. By the way, let me just say, listen closely, nobody laughs themselves into heaven. You don't laugh yourself into heaven. You cry yourself into heaven, so to speak. In verse 5, after we recognize we're spiritually bankrupt and we need to repent of our sin, then, then what happens in the third one? There's this lowering of ourselves before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We, we recognize that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. And every area of our life is subjected to the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's a sweet surrender here in verse 5 where we, we see blessed are the meek. In verse 6, verse 6 completes saving faith here for us, true saving faith. There's a hungering and, and a thirsting for righteousness that is not our own. You can't get into heaven without Christ's righteousness. It's not yours. You need the righteousness of Christ. This completes, by the way, this this first section, this first level, the elements of true saving faith. How do you get into the kingdom of heaven? That's the first four beatitudes. Four steps that lead through the narrow gate into the kingdom of God. And so we see here the order is, of course, perfect. The greatest preacher preaching the greatest sermon gives us the perfect order. And by the way, even after salvation, okay, even after your salvation, please don't, you know, just kind of take these beatitudes and push them aside and neglect them, and and forget about them? If you're a Christian, you have entered into the narrow gate. These these things are important even after our salvation. These are things that should continue in our lives even after our salvation. I mean, just because you're a Christian, does that mean that you shouldn't be humble, and you shouldn't mourn over your sin, that you shouldn't be meek? No, of course not. Those things should continue throughout your whole life. So the order is perfect. They're continuous. And then in the next, the last four Beatitudes, these are a little bit different. Here we're going to see uh, how we're going to give evidence of Christian virtue in our lives. The one who is, is, is going to enter into the kingdom of God is going to have these attitudes in their lives. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 says, blessed are the merciful. The one who is a Christian is going to be merciful. If you're a Christian and you've entered into that narrow gate, guess what? You're going to be a merciful person. Yes, of course you're not going to be perfect. But on the whole, whole, as you see what God has done for you, 
As you see, as God, as God has shown mercy to you, you are going to show mercy to other people. Verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers. If you have peace with God, then you're going to show peace to others, aren't you? The one who is right with God and who has God's peace, part of the fruit of the Spirit, then you're going to, you're, you're, you're going to have that peace. You, if you have been justified, then you're going to show evidence of sanctification in your life, and that's going to be shown by being a peacemaker. Verses 10 through 12 show us that if you live out the reality of those first seven Beatitudes, then when you are actually persecuted because you're actually uh, standing out by having these attitudes in your life, well, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get persecuted. Why are you going to get persecuted? Because you stand out. (laughs) You're going to stand out like a neon sign shining shining in the dark. You're going to be a lightning rod in a storm. You guys know what a lightning rod is, right? They often put them on top of buildings. That, that piece of metal sticking up in the air so, so the building doesn't get hit. What gets hit? That piece of metal, that lightning rod gets hit by the lightning. You're going to be like a lightning rod. You're going to stand out. You're going to, you're going to attract attention if, if these attitudes are in you. You're going to be so countercultural that you're going to even stand out in the church. You're going to be like a salmon swimming upstream. (laughs) There's going to be resistance because people are going to be convicted as they're around you. You ever felt that happen to you at at your workplace or in your family? You try to live according to what God has prescribed us to live, according to the Bible? That's going to make people uncomfortable. Darkness doesn't like the light because Jesus said in John 3, their their deeds are evil. So if the world persecuted the master, then you can expect the same treatment then. Do you see the progression here? There's a progression going on here that Jesus is giving us. Everything is building to a climax. You say, what is the climax? The climax actually happens when someone enters into the narrow gate, receives eternal life, goes into the kingdom of heaven... This person's shown the virtues of things like meekness, purity, peacemaking. And you know what's going to happen to that kind of a person? Jesus says that person's going to be persecuted for righteousness' sake. Do you see how the great master teacher here has laid out this progression for us? It's wonderful to behold. It's it's an awesome thing to see, isn't it? Well, I think it is. So let's, let's think about the results of true happiness. What happens when these blessings and these attitudes are, are making up our life? Well, there's certain results that we see here of true happiness. Notice that all of the results differ here. In other words, they're different except for the first and the last one. The first and the last work like you will as bookends. You know what a bookend is, right? If you have books on your shelf, and for whatever reason you don't have enough books to fill up the shelf, or maybe you have one of those, those shelves that doesn't have ends on it, what do we often do? We, we put bookends on the, on the ends of those books so the books don't fall over. 
So think of the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude as bookends. That's what they're doing. They act as bookends around these blessings. Here are the details, if you will, the the components, the layers of blessedness that Jesus is prescribing for us. Look at verse 3, first of all. What happens? What's the result? You become an heir of the kingdom of heaven, in verse 3. What does it mean to become an heir of the kingdom of heaven? It means that you actually enter into God's kingdom. First of all, you receive all the rights and the privileges of being adopted into his family. And then in verse 4, it says that you're going to receive comfort. Comfort is going to come to you. And this is true comfort. This isn't some superficial, shallow, meaningless kind of a comfort. You know, the, the be warmed and filled that James talks about. No, this is, this is real comfort that Jesus is talking about here. The kind of comfort that Jesus talks about in Matthew 11. Look at this. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said this, Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's true comfort. But it's only found in Jesus. Number five, what's the result? You will inherit the earth. You will inherit the earth. No, it doesn't mean you get the whole thing to yourself, okay? (laughs) That's not what it's talking about. But if you go back to the Old Testament, the Israelites were promised that they would inherit the promised land, but this promise here is even better than that. It's far better than that. See, whenever you are, or I should say, wherever you are, whatever you do in this life, God says you're going to receive His blessing. And during the thousand-year millennium, when Jesus is ruling and reigning on this earth, he's saying, you're going to receive the entirety of this wonderful blessing. You're not going to get it now. It's going to come during the millennium. This is one of those ones that's future tense. And then in verse 6, Jesus says, you're going to be filled. You will be filled. In other words, you will be satisfied. Many troubled souls around this world would give their right arm. They would cut off their foot to truly be satisfied. So many people long for that. They try everything to truly be satisfied, to truly be filled. They try everything, but they cannot do it because they're looking for it in all the wrong places, aren't they? Somebody went through high schools in the United States one year trying to find out what do high schoolers in the United States, what is it that they long for? What is it that they want the most in life? Interestingly enough, the top three were love, joy, and peace. The fruit of the Spirit. How do you get that? Become a Christian. The Holy Spirit has to do that. And of course, many of them were looking for it in all the wrong places. They weren't Christians, so that's why they longed for it, because they didn't have it. God says you will be satisfied. God wants to give this to us, and guess what? You don't have to give your arm and your leg for it. He gives it to you freely. Number, verse 7, the result in verse 7 is that you will receive mercy. 
By the way, guess what? You receive mercy when you come into the kingdom, and you're going to continue to receive mercy upon mercy upon mercy even after you become a Christian. And that's a good thing because you and I need it. We need mercy. Verse 8, what's the result of verse 8? You will see God. You can't see him now, but you will. You will see God. I don't know about you, but you have to scratch your head on that one and ask the question, can I really believe that one, that I'm actually going to get to see God one day? In our sinful state, we don't want to see God. We would be consumed if we saw God. God has to protect us from himself right now because we're still sinners. But one day, my friend, if you're a Christian, you're going to stand before God with no more sin. And you will want to see God, and you're not going to be consumed. Are you longing for that day? Are you looking forward to that day? Verse 9 says that we will be called sons of God. We will be called sons of God. God. Just meditate upon that one for a while. Sons of who? God. This is the assurance of true saving faith. This is the confidence that we've actually been adopted into the family of God. By the way, you're not born into the family of God. Okay? There are people in the world who think that. We're all God's children. That's heresy. That's rubbish. We're not all God's children. You have to be adopted. God has to adopt you into his family. So this is the, that confidence that we will be called sons of God. Verse 10 says that we're going to receive the kingdom of heaven. Not only are you adopted into his family, but you receive all the rights and the privileges that come with being one of his sons. Now we'll meditate on that one more later. That's, that's a rich one. And then in verse 12 it says... The result is that we're going to receive a great reward in heaven, and you will be associated with the prophets. You ever wanted to meet the prophets? You ever wanted to be named amongst them? People like Elijah, Elisha, and Daniel, just to name a few? Well, my friends, these are the results of blessedness. And I want to tell you, you've never received an offer like this one, not in your whole life. Have you ever received an offer like this? And you never will receive an offer like this. This is the best offer you've ever been given. It doesn't get any better than this offer. This offer, my friend, is off the chart. It's, it's indescribable. It's, it, we, we couldn't, I can't even do it justice. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? There's not enough words, and I'm not eloquent enough to do it justice. This offer is off the charts. The greatest thing about this offer is that it's not too good to be true. There's a lot of offers that are too good to be true. By the way, beware of those, those pop-up things that... You, you ever surf the internet? You know what I'm talking about? It happens to me all the time. You're surfing the internet, and you get these pop-up things that come up as you're looking at something on the internet. Congratulations! You've won $1 million or whatever. You know what I'm talking about? It happens to me all the time. What a load of rubbish. Uh, okay, well, I, I thought I was trying to block all those obnoxious things, but apparently I haven't done a good enough job. Does, does anyone actually, apparently people believe those things. Most offers like that are too good to be true, aren't they? They're just too good to be true. 
And sadly, too many people fall for these, these offers, you know, you know we're, we're going to give you a free house, we're going to give you, you know, a bridge in New York City, we're, gonna, we're even going to give you a star, you know, or whatever, you know, there's all kinds of weird things people are doing today. But this offer is not too good to be true, and, and why can we believe that? Because don't forget who's giving the offer. The creator of the universe is the one giving this offer. I know this one's not too good to be true because I know the one giving you the offer. He is powerful enough to deliver the goods. So these results are offered to you by Jesus Christ. So my friend, are you in the kingdom? Have you passed through the narrow gate? You say, well, I don't know if I'm in the kingdom. I don't know if I've passed through this narrow gate that Jesus talks about in chapter 7. And if you want to know the answer to those two questions, well, the answer is really answered by looking at the questions that we see here. Let me give you some questions to think about. Are you poor in spirit? Do you mourn? Do, are you meek? Do you hunger for righteousness? Okay? Those are four elements of true saving faith. They will help you to know whether or not you have entered the narrow gate. They will help you to know if you are in the kingdom. If, you, if you've never mourned in, in spirit, you, or sorry, if you are not poor in spirit, if you do not mourn, if you aren't meek, if you do not hunger for righteousness, then you're not in the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. But Jesus goes on. Let, let's look at the other ones. Do you show mercy to others? Are you pure in heart? Are you a peacemaker? Are you persecuted for your faith? Are you in the kingdom? Are you saved? Have you been born again? And so if you can honestly answer yes to those questions, now it doesn't, please understand, it doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us are perfect. None of us will be like Jesus on this earth. Some people look at these and they say, man, that's impossible. That's right, they are impossible. You can't do them. It's the Holy Spirit who who performs these attitudes in you. You must rely upon the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, without Him, you can do nothing. But with Him, all things are possible. God says, if you can say yes to these questions, you're in the kingdom. If you've never put your, your faith, your trust, your belief in Christ alone for eternal life in heaven, then I pray that today would be the day that you do that. Okay, my friend, if, if you can't answer yes to those questions... It's possible that you can. It's possible for you to know that when you die, you can go to, you're going to know that you go to heaven. It's not presumption. It's not arrogance. It's not pride to know that people go to heaven. Please don't think that way. In fact, the Bible says that these things were written that you might know that you have eternal life. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not presumption. It's trusting in the God who promises it. So my friend, may you see a holy God who must judge sin and may you repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ alone.